Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, I'm talking to Stephen Awayemi, who is currently finishing up his PhD. His research investigates the cultural factors that influence the behavior of traders and buyers of vulture parts for religious purposes by the Yoruba people in Nigeria. He recently returned from the field where he spent time with vulture traders for several days each to study and listen to their beliefs, motivations, and other underlying factors for trading vultures. The findings of his ethnographic research are absolutely fascinating. One thing you may notice when you listen to Stephen is the humility and empathy with which he approaches his research. He's such a kind-hearted person and it really comes through. I am very hopeful that his recommendations for policy changes described in the discussion today are holistic and pragmatic and have a strong chance of working because it isn't about shaming people for their traditional ways, but getting them to adopt more sustainable practices. If you're interested in learning other dimensions of the wildlife trade in Africa, we have covered different aspects of this on the podcast. There's episode 15 with Valerie Nasoita from Kenya, who talks about rescuing vultures. And then there's also episode 37 with Elena Green, who talks about how gender plays a role in the wild meat trade. Finally, there is a video recording of this conversation with Stephen Awayemi. So head on over to our YouTube channel if you're curious. I've included the link in the show notes. Talk to you next week. All right, Stephen, thank you again for making time for us on Breaking Green Ceilings. I'm glad we could connect after so many months. I was looking back at my notes and the first time we talked was, I think, June of last year, 2020. And Was that April, May? May? <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite long. <laughs> yeah. But we have persevered. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at that time, you were in Nigeria doing your research, correct? Yes, yes, I was uh, doing my field work at that time. And it was such a good conversation, and I'm glad that we get to share it with some of our listeners and viewers here today. So we'll get started. So today we're going to talk to you, as I mentioned, about your PhD research on how sociological <laughs> theories help explain and solve the conservation problem of trade and vulture parts but, uh, yeah. for traditional medicine in Nigeria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... <laughs> It's a great title here. So typically, before we go into that, I just want to kind of help people get to know a little bit about you. And the first question that I ask is, what role has nature played in your life? Well, I wouldn't say nature has played a role in my life, but I would say I have evolved over the years into more greater awareness and consciousness that has made me kind of more connected to nature respect for nature, to value nature, and of course, all life forms, humans and all. So that broadening consciousness makes me connect to nature. So it comes from my own evolution as a human being, not nature in the first place. Right. And so your focus of study is in wildlife conservation. So how did you decide to choose that as 
a focus. How did that come about? Mm, interesting. I like that. <laughs> so I would say it started many years ago. That was in 2002. I was awarded a scholarship to attend the field course in tropical biology and conservation, which was sponsored by the Tropical Biology Association. So we're on the Usambara Mountains for one month during that time, made up of people from different countries. So that was my first real peak into what conservation is all about, because I read zoology for my first degree, but I didn't know much about conservation. So, but during that course, my eyes were opened into the noble profession that conservation is all about. And one thing that really got me stuck with conservation is that it is a cause. It's something larger than oneself, something that is so spiritual in my own perspective that you want to save life on earth. It's just like a parallel to medicine kind of <laughs> saving humans. So that spiritual connection with conservation is what made me stick to it because it kind of helped me have a connection to something larger than myself. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you started off with zoology. What was your intention of when you decided to pursue zoology? And like, what were you looking to achieve through zoology? And then I love that you were talking about your spiritual connection to something bigger and greater than yourself. Was there any specific experience that kind of like ignited that spiritual connection or helped you find it? Sure. I would say <laughs> zoology was pure coincidence for me. I never planned out read zoology. I didn't have, growing up, I didn't have any inclination to wildlife. I had no notions about wildlife. And the conventional thing for us science students is that once we finish high school, we want to read medicine. Everybody wants to read medicine. I didn't know anything about career options. So that was what I had in mind when I was entering the university. But I didn't make it into medicine. So I made it into zoology and I had to study zoology. And so I did it half-heartedly. I was like, okay, I will study zoology. Let's see what happens. But after reading the course, what made the turning point in my life was that field course in tropical biology and conservation. It broadened my eyes and horizons about what conservation is all about. And the zoology is really something that is meaningful if you look at the applied dimensions. So the pivotal turning point for me was that course. And yes, so the spiritual connection <laughs> with conservation, ah, I would say that in my own life, I've come a long way in terms of trying to find myself. Being one was a religious fundamentalist in my early days from the age of 11 to about 21. In that process, of finding myself, I went through a crisis. And so emerging out of it was a kind of greater connection to myself and that kind of self-awareness. So this really, really, really gave me opportunity to consider other alternatives, other options, other worldviews. If I didn't emerge from that crisis, I would have still been kind of encapsulated in my own close-minded worldview. But my, that crisis was an opportunity for me 
And so, of course, when religion was out of the way, I needed something to connect to that was broader than myself. And conservation played that role for me. It's something I aspire towards to contribute to the solving the biodiversity crisis, which is something larger than me. It really serves a spiritual function for me. And of course, the lovely people I meet while doing that <laughs> is really something that is very, 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 very wonderful. Yeah. It's really interesting because we talked about some of the factors that religion plays into conservation that you also embed in your research. And so I didn't realize that there was a personal element to it where you experienced a personal crisis. And it's really interesting how that kind of experience from like a a religious perspective is now kind of also, I guess, harnessing in your research. That's really interesting. Absolutely. So let's start talking about your fascinating research, and we can also talk about the role that religion plays in it. You're currently doing your PhD research, as we mentioned, on how sociological theory helps explain and solve conservation problems of trade and vulture parts. And you're pursuing this through the Central European University, and you got your degrees in zoology in Nigeria, and then also in your MS in Cambridge. So. Describe to us, in a nutshell, what is your research about? So my research actually is about finding two answers, and that is the sociocultural factors that influence the behavioral patterns of traders and buyers of vultures for belief-based use. And the second question is, based on the answers to that first question, how? Can I contribute to minimizing the illegal trade? So that is what my research is all about. And based on that, I did ethnographic studies in four cities. That is Ibadan, Abelkuta, Ilonri, and Ijebode in southwestern Nigeria. I know those names are strange. <laughs> it kind of sounds French. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So those cities are well known for selling wildlife parts, wildlife markets in the cities. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you were looking at the belief systems that contribute towards the killing. The buying and selling. Yeah. Buying and selling of the vulture parts. And vultures are endangered in Nigeria. Absolutely. So according to the Nigerian Conservation Foundation, because a very little study has been done on this, but the Nigerian Conservation Foundation reports that we used to have seven of species of vultures in Nigeria, such as the white-backed vulture, the white-headed vulture, and the Egyptian vulture. But now five of these species are under threat, and they are locally extinct in some parts of the country. So that is why in Nigeria and other West African countries, this has become a priority because vultures are threatened in this sub-region. In fact, the hooded vultures that used to be so common, found in abateurs, I mean, almost everywhere. But now they are critically endangered. They have been uplisted in the IUCN red list, so critically endangered. So it's a big problem out there. And it has been suggested that belief-based use of vultures is contributing to their decline. Yeah. So 
Describe to people who don't know what belief-based use is in context of the vulture parts. Wow. So this basically means the symbolic and ritualistic use of vultures that are not based on scientific evidence, but based on beliefs, uh, religious beliefs and cultural beliefs. And the examples are the, the belief that vultures can heal one of a mental illness can be used for love charm. So if you're interested in a woman and you love the woman and you want to make the woman yours, you can use the vultures to do that. And then other things are like business success, winning a lottery. So these are different things that are just beliefs that the vultures can do this. And this is basically based on the myths, the primordial myths that are associated with vultures because in the Yoruba culture, in the beginning, vultures played a redemptive role in saving the earth from a catastrophe. So in the beginning, let me tell you this short story. I'll make it very brief. It's a myth. So in the beginning, there was chaos on the earth. So the elders, the priests invited all the animals because they knew that for this problem to be solved, they had to go to heaven where Olodumari, which is God, lives. And they knew they could not fly to heaven. So they called all the birds and said, who will go to heaven on our behalf to take the sacrifice to heaven so that God will be appeased and save the earth? And everybody kept, all the birds kept quiet. Nobody said anything. And the vulture volunteered and came forward and said, I will go. And so they placed the sacrifice on the vulture's head and the vulture danced around like this. And they flew with the sacrifice to heaven. <laughs> and then Olodumari uh, received the sacrifice and then the earth was saved from the crisis. And um, it is said that there's a proverb that says that it is because the vulture carried the sacrifice on its head. That is why its head is bald. <laughs> so that's an interesting myth. But this myth iconized vultures and they are idolized because of this iconization, which also is related to their being used for magical religious purposes. Interesting. I guess I find it a little bit ironic in the sense that if the vulture, from my perspective, I guess, is seen as like sacred. a sacred animal, right? It is, yes. So why kill what is sacred? Absolutely. That is interesting thing. So like I was writing in my own dissertation. So there are two aspects to this vulture, the sacredness and the iconization of the vulture is still intact. But the non-killing traditions, because in those days it was forbidden to kill vultures among the Yorubas, because there's an adage that says you don't kill the vulture, you don't eat the vulture, and you don't use it for sacrifice. But the non-killing traditions have disappeared. Only the iconization remains in terms of the respect the vulture that is sacred bed and it solved many problems. But the non-killing traditions have been have stopped. And I don't know how this happened. You know, culture evolved. So the only way it can be explained is that probably somebody in the Yoruba history may have made the first move. Something must have happened, and that is what you call innovation in cultural diffusion. So somebody makes 
has a new idea and he could be a very prestigious person, a leader, and transmits it to a group. And the group then starts to spread the idea. So possibly somebody in history may have veered off the path of the non-killing traditions of vultures. And that is how everybody started doing it, killing vultures for ritual. Because it was forbidden to use vultures for rituals before. You don't use the vultures for ritual. It was forbidden. It was a sacred animal. But today, this is not so. And there's a lot in the literature that speaks about cultural evolution and how culture changes. That culture is not static. It evolves. Right. Okay, so this is very interesting. You mentioned the killing of the vultures in Yoruba culture. So Yoruba are the tribe that are in Nigeria, correct? So there are three majority tribes in Nigeria. You have the Aousas, the Yoruba, and the Igbo. Oh, yes, so the, the Igbo, Yoruba yes. make the second most populous tribe or ethnic group in Nigeria. And they are found in the southwest and some parts of central Nigeria. Of course, they are found everywhere, but, <laughs> but mostly in those pockets. Yeah. Right. And so... Is the vulture killing common in other tribes or is it just predominantly in the Yoruba culture? So it has been documented among the Aousas too that they use it for traditional medicine. But apart from those two, there's no, I've not seen any information about that. Um, Interesting. Mostly the Yorubas. In fact, it is the Yorubas that also sell these things in other, other right. states. Yeah. Because they are... Wherever they are and they do traditional medicine, they, they sell these things. So they are known for selling traditional medicine in Europe. Interesting. Okay. So we don't know how or at what point the culture evolved to start using vulture parts for medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. As you were explaining how the vulture is used for different, I guess, human needs, and they're mostly material needs. Like Mm -hmm. business success, winning the lottery, success in your career, love, or lust in this case. (laughs) (laughs) If we know that it's there's no scientific evidence, that means there's not enough, and I'm just assuming that there's not enough data to suggest that using these vulture parts results in the desired outcomes. But if people are still using it, there must be a positive outcome somehow. Otherwise, they might be like, no, it's not working. So These are indigenous communities. Right. And um, of course, even some people who are educated, often, sometimes they use this belief-based use medicine. But you have to understand that beliefs could be irrational. And people just keep doing things because they want to do them or because other people do them or have told them that they work. And it is science that teaches us critical thinking, to look for evidence, to always evaluate our thinking. But how do you expect indigenous people to know this? And people who have not been exposed to the rigors of science. And so I think that is the issue here. Because of that, because you cannot overnight make these people to start thinking critically and to evaluate their beliefs. You have to look for some other way to reach out to them. And we'll come to that later. Yeah. I guess when you were explaining it, it made me think of 
some of the things that we do in our culture, which are not necessarily science-based, but because mm-hmm. they're norms, they're practices that we've done Absolutely. over the years. This is just kind of the way it Especially is. It's part of our childhood. identity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I was also thinking that people are probably holding on to the hope that it will work. Maybe it's not working for me right now, but it will at some point. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just <laughs> keep doing it in the hopes that it will work. Yeah. Sort of like your chances of probability. You should believe, yeah. I think that is a thing we all have to deal with in terms of really making sure that we really are self-aware and scrutinize our beliefs and make sure they are based on evidence. It's a responsibility for everybody, not just indigenous people. Exactly, because you were talking about how even the wealthy folks or even those who are educated are still carrying on these practices because Mm -hmm. it's just such a big part of their cultural oh, sure. identity Absolutely. that it's not necessarily I mean and you're the expert but it sounds like maybe it's not just necessarily like educational level but mostly affiliation to cultural practices and norms in a sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but education like a certain type of education would obviously try to appeal to the rational side of like hey, the vultures are dying. We need them for our overall <laughs> growth and health. And is this helping you find love? Is you know, the vultures' wings helping you find love? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yes, you need to ask them. Yeah. Mm. So, okay, you said then you have been in these communities talking to the buyers and to the sellers. Mm-hmm. Who are the sellers? And what are you finding from those conversations? Yeah, so the sellers overwhelmingly are mostly women. So the trade profession is matrilineal. And this has been experienced in other cultures with other practices, not just Nigeria or southwestern Nigeria among the Yoruba. So through vertical transmission, grandmothers pass this to their daughters or granddaughters or mothers pass this on to their daughter. And in some cases, sons also inherit this practice, but it is mostly women that do inherit the practice. And that thing I discovered is that beyond vertical transmission of these traits of selling virtual parts or wildlife parts in general, we also have what we call the horizontal transmission. That is the, the transfer of traits from a trader to unrelated persons. And in that sense, what I experienced or what I saw with my own eyes was that these traders, these traders have apprentices who stay in their shops and learn the trade for upwards of seven years before they can set up their own business and start selling wildlife parts. So you can see that this is going a two-way direction, vertically and horizontally. But the horizontal transmission has more potential to spread out to a greater amount of people because you can only train one or two persons at a time vertically, or maybe three persons, but seven persons can be in your shop as, as apprentices at this 
So imagine one shop has five apprentices, for instance. Another shop has five apprentices. Maybe another one, three. Another one, two. So you can imagine the way the trade profession is being spread. So meaning that in a couple of years, you're going to have many, many more wildlife traders. So yeah, that is what I experienced. And then the buyers, for the buyers, although there were very few buyers I could get, but importantly, I noticed most of them were male. In fact, virtually all of them were male. And they all said that they inherited the practice of using vultures for Philippe's use. They inherited it from their parents. So they were taught by their parents and they, they continued this practice. There's one other thing I didn't mention with the traders is that overwhelmingly, the majority of these traders were Muslims. And the reason why is because among the Yoruba Muslims, there's a practice of what they call syncretism. That is the combination of different worldviews, ideas, and ways of thinking. So Yoruba Muslims combine Islam and traditional religion. So this is why the Muslims can afford to sell vulture parts for belief-based use, or what they call for fetish uses. Otherwise, Christianity, the other religion, the other main religion in Nigeria, will frown at such things. But Christians, they call it paganism, all sorts of things. So they will not want to practice or involve themselves in such things. But Yoruba Muslims practice what they call syncretism. Syncretism? Syncretism. Okay. I've heard of that word. Syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. So this combination of religions gives a basis for supporting the trade. It gives a basis for supporting the trade. And that is a strong basis. (laughs) Because if religion is in support, you want to do any, just keep doing something. You don't really trouble yourself. Interesting. It reminds me of a book that I read by V.S. Nepal. And he was talking about why Islam is a religion that is accepting of the other non-Islamic traditions, cultural ways of life where Islam allows you to follow some of your indigenous cultural practices while also following the tenets of Islam. And that's what's made it like such a conducive religion in a sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. And has yeah. made it easily acceptable by large populations. And Islam right now, I think, is the largest religion in the world or the second largest. I don't remember the statistics on it. Yeah, I think it should be the second largest. Yeah. So what you're finding is kind of similar to what I read in that book. It seems like it's a very sensitive topic or study because the trading of wildlife parts is illegal in Nigeria, but the trade based on our last conversation is it's not highly regulated or it's not easy to implement kind of policing power over the trade. So I guess, how did you approach the sellers or the traders and ask them like, hey, can I sit in your store or your stall and kind of observe you? 
what was the interaction experience like? Yeah. So I would like to say that first that the Nigerian government is making efforts, but they could do better because some of the traders told me that they have been harassed by government or policemen or and then some announcements have been made in the marketplaces, advocacy, sometimes and at one point one of the head traders in Abelkuta was called to the radio station and they discussed and then she was told to go back to tell other traders not to sell vultures or yeah, or wildlife or something like that. Of course, there's still much more to be done because these markets are still open and they are still selling. Nobody has stopped. So there's still a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. So yes, how did I get into these markets? <laughs> I think one thing about life is this. You need to respect people. It's very important. Respect. And among the Yorubas, respect is so important. You, you need to humble yourself and just respect people. I think that is one thing that made me get into their midst and they really welcomed me with open arms. Many of them were so welcoming. Some offered me food, some, you know, just wanted to take care of me and make sure I was comfortable. So because I saw them, I used to spend like one week with every trader. I come in the morning around um, 11 a.m. when it's about the peak of time when buyers come to buy parts. And then I leave at 3 p.m. when the market is about, the peak is falling. And I mean, people are not too many every day for one week with each trader. So I spend like 10 weeks in each market for each city. And then the buyers, sometimes the traders connect me to buyers and tell me, this is a researcher. He wants to ask some questions. Please give him audience. So they are so fantastic, actually. And then there was one trader I met who gave me contacts with traders in about three cities, three other cities, gave me their contacts, their names, and everything. So it was easy for me that so when I go to those markets in those cities, <laughs> I just had to ask for those people, and it was so easy. Secondly, another trader I met told me a son He's studying zoology in the university. Yeah. <laughs> wow, interesting. And then uh, she's also a teacher by profession. So quite interesting things I met. So one trader told me, oh, you want to see things? You don't think this business is important? I will take you to PSC orders who are selling wildlife parts. I said, really? PSC orders? PSC orders. Bachelors, bachelors. Oh. Yeah, graduates. <laughs> Who are selling wildlife parts. And then she took me to one woman. And then one looked at me and said, yes, I read biochemistry. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and I looked at her. And when she had left, I looked at the other trader who was my host. And uh, I asked her, but why is this? He said, most of these traders when they graduated from the university and didn't find any job, they didn't find employment, they used to go to their mother's shops to assist their mother and so That is how they have been surviving and taking, well, of course, when their parents now die, but when their mother dies, they now take over the shop and they have continued ever since. 
So employment is one of those reasons why BSE orders continue, of course, involved. But well, you have to you have to look at BSE orders, but I don't think all BSE orders are the same. So somebody told me I would surprise you more. There's a PhD holder in this market oh, no. who sells wildlife parts. I said, PhD holder? Wow. And so they brought the woman to me. And she told me, yes, she's a PhD holder. She studied education. And I think she did a PhD in basic science or something. I was like, wow. I think she said she sponsored herself throughout the PhD. Wow. Probably it was this wildlife pass that sponsored the education. Maybe. Maybe. So you find out that economic challenges could also make people, because women who are unskilled, even though they have some education, could be forced to go into the trade profession. Importantly, that is because their parents were traders or their mother was a trader. But let us look at the other case of horizontal transmission. Those people who didn't have relatives or parents or mothers who were, or whatever as traders who voluntarily went to a trader to be trained, why would they do such a thing? I think what I'm suggesting is the lucrativeness of the trade. That is why they'll be interested. Because while I was in the shop of one woman in Ibadan, she told me something. I saw a jeep parked in front of our shop, and I asked her, who owns this jeep? She told me it's hers. I said, wow. She said, don't you know this business is very lucrative? It's very lucrative. In fact, one can build up to three houses with this business. And each house would cost like 12 million naira. 12 million naira should be, wow, can I remember? No, 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 I need to check this. I must yes, tell yes. you this. 12 million naira, I must check it. 12 million naira to dollars, right? Oh, that is about $31,400. That's still a lot. $31,400 for one house. And you can build up to three houses. Apart from that, go on pilgrimage to Mecca. You buy cars. And you also send your children to university. So that is for those who are good at it. I'm not saying all of them are this, <laughs> are this successful. Just like every walk of life, not everybody is successful at what they do. So, But for those who are successful in the wildlife trade, they make money. They sell all sorts of all sorts. I mean, I've seen the trunk of an elephant cut into bits. Yes, I've seen gorilla heads. I've seen small things that look like hedgehogs. Pretty beautiful animals. <laughs> so they sell all sorts. For those who are good at it, they make money. And there was, this woman I saw with deep in front of her shop. She has traveled far and wide. She's the one that gave me contacts in those cities. In fact, if I told her I was going to Benin, or Benin Republic, she would have given me contacts there. She's well-traveled with wildlife trade. Well traveled. I mean, I just can't help be impressed by the lucrativeness of the traders. And I don't know, I'm just really kind of shocked by the dynamics of the trade as well. 
in terms of how economics is really fundamentally driving this trade, it really brings to light just how much of a bigger problem it is. It's not just necessarily about mindsets, it's about livelihood. And if we can find a way to create a more guaranteed path to economic or socioeconomic status, maybe that would help reduce the interest in the trade. Yeah. I've looked at that idea of alternative livelihoods. For this, it might be difficult because one, that trade is so lucrative, so it would be difficult for them to leave it because in comparison, many told me that they can't leave the trade because they don't see anything better or more lucrative than it. And secondary, the cultural beliefs of the is a matrilinear ancestral trade that deals with your ancestry. It has been something your generations have been doing. You don't want to leave it. I mean, you inherited this trade, so you don't want to stop it. It's a, a family tradition. So, I mean, so these are barriers to wanting to say they should leave the trade business. But there are possibilities that we can look at. We'll come to that. Yeah. I guess let's go ahead and talk about the possibilities that you... Okay, good, good. If you want us to talk about yeah. that, that is fine. So in my study, in my proposal, I had two theories in mind, the cultural transmission theory and the social ecology theory. But in the field, when I got to the field, I saw the only theory that worked out was the cultural transmission theory. And I'll define both of them. The social ecology theory is just thesis of their theory is that social institutions are responsible for the socialization of individuals. So the environmental problems are not to be pointed at individuals, but at the social institutions. And then for the cultural transmission theory, thesis of that theory is that cultural traits are passed from generation to generation. And then... This could be conveyed through different means, from demonstration to modeling to storytelling, etc. So there are various ways in which transmission occurs in terms of mechanisms, from horizontal mechanism of transmission to vertical, and from many to one, or from one to many. So these are different mechanisms in which cultural transmission, culture is transmitted. So when I got to the field, I found out that, of course, cultural transmission is well established because this profession is matrilineal and parents pass this cultural information or traits to their children. Or let me say from mother to daughter or from grandmother to granddaughter. And then not only that, daughters also pass it to their children. So it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. So this cultural transmission theory, because it has been able to explain my study, I tested it in the field and I saw that it worked for me. Therefore, it now serves as a context. It now gives me a framework to solve the problem. So this cultural transmission theory can provide me theoretical foundations for finding a solution to the illegal trading vultures. And so I looked at that theory, and that theory explains that cultural transmission from parents to offspring is usually, is unlikely in terms of cultural change, 
is very unlikely or very slow. But cultural transmission from one to many is the fastest approach for cultural change to happen. Hmm. That is where I saw my opportunity. So there can be an innovation of culture if somebody with prestige, a teacher, a leader, or an opinion leader can transmit the new or innovative cultural value or trait. And my research tells me that majority of these traders are Muslims. It gives me a fantastic opportunity to tap into the cultural values of these traders, to work within their culture because there's significant, there's information to support that approach in working with the cultural value system of the people, not imposing your Western ideologies on them. That will bring reactivity or resistance. It's best you work within the cultural framework. And within that cultural framework, you inspire new attitudes, values, and then changing behavior. So the idea then is to find opinion leaders in those communities who are Muslims and work with them collaboratively to co-develop approaches, new messages for their followership among those market women. And that would mean extracting conservation principles from the scriptures, such as the fact that stewardship are one of the main tenets of Islam. The term is called Khalifa. And then the moral and ethical duty to protect life on earth. So these are possibilities one could explore with Muslim leaders. Mm -hmm. And so this is one idea, and it falls within the cultural transmission theory. So this is one idea that I have, which has been developed that manuscript in collaboration with um, other, <laughs> other authors, and I've sent it to conception science and practice, hoping that it will be published. I will share with you if it gets published. <laughs> I want to read it. Yeah. yeah, so that is one idea. And secondly, I have another idea. Well, this has not been peer-reviewed, actually, but it's just something that I'm thinking of. So on that same cultural transmission theory foundations, we can think of storytelling as a conduit to inspire new values that are provocative among buyers and their families. Because storytelling is the way they received the cultural trait initially from their fathers. So using that same vehicle, we can reach out to their children or to them. And therefore, we can make a break in the intergenerational transfer of those traits. Or we can inspire new values and attitudes in the bearers of these belief-based use practices of vultures. So, Storytelling is something that is part of our life. We are hardwired for stories. We love stories. And you can imagine how much Hollywood makes every year. <laughs> so stories are so important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially among indigenous communities. In Yoruba land, folk tales, myths are so important. But 
gone are the days when people sat under the moonlight to hear stories. That is in the past because uh, civilization and all this. <laughs> but one important country through which we could reach out these stories and to make these stories a kind of two-way communication to involve a dialogue so that it's not just be explicit messages telling them don't do this, don't do that, but to just inspire a dialogue where we can discuss about this true storytelling, about the non-killing traditions of vultures. So that is one possibility I'm looking at, still falling under the cultural transmission theory. Yeah, I love those ideas. It just goes back to <laughs> to how you started, which is it's important to be respectful and humble. Mm-hmm. And those ideas encapsulate those values. Absolutely. Because rather than shaming and criminalizing people for their traditional practices, I love the idea of what you talked about in terms of cultural evolution and innovating the culture where you add Mm -hmm. new ideas because that's what culture does. Mm -hmm. So just like that one person, I don't know when, said, let's kill Mm -hmm. him. You're saying, (laughs) no, (laughs) you're creating an opportunity for adding another element to that story, but in a way that Mm -hmm. is within the norms of the culture, right? Absolutely. And that is, you're still being respectful and you're doing it within the context of the culture. And so when you were talking about leaders in the Yoruba community, sorry, I was thinking, oh, you could totally partner up with an imam to talk about how Islam, like the Khalifas, speak to conservation Mm -hmm. in Islam and care and stewardship for the natural environment. And then with the storytelling, I was just imagining the moms could be part of the storytelling team, right? Because they tell stories. Of course. So we could integrate these approaches. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I love that. And then I was like, oh, maybe we should make a radio show about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be nice. Because <laughs> they did it in Rwanda after the genesis. Really? Yes. Wow. It was a radio show which was kind of like a soap about a Hutu and a Tutsi couple who liked each other and lived in different parts of a hill. But the names of these locations weren't like in Rwanda just because they wanted to create some sort of like detachment from the reality in a sense. But that radio show went for years and majority of Rwandans loved that story because it tapped into their cultural norms, practices, beliefs, but also tapped into like a common human value for unity and wanting our communities to flourish as a whole. But it's amazing what storytelling and with the right medium can do. Absolutely. Millions of Rwandans follow that story. So I can see how the communities that you've worked in could do something like that. But I'll send you information on that story. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. There's a lot of promise there. I so. love that. Love yeah. that. I could talk to you for hours. This is like about your research. And <laughs> this is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's so interesting. I wish... One day I can hang out with you in one of those shops, you know, as 
<laughs> I was like to be nice. I would like to take you there. I have friends there yeah. now. People I've made friends with. And it's great because they don't see you as a threat. They don't see you as like, oh, this is somebody who's trying to get information yeah, so that yeah, it can yeah. eventually lead to the end of my way of life. It's yeah, just like... true. Some of them were afraid that will happen, but I was always quiet. I didn't go beyond my boundaries. I was... What I came there to do was to do research and I wish I was doing research. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I was peaceful. And I think that's what's helped you come up with such non-invasive and kind solutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not like quietly observing and kind of evil mind making over there. <laughs> and you're like, yes, how must we destroy this? Yeah, that's no. true. You have to go in mind in their shoes to understand where they are coming from. That's so fundamental to doing research is what I've learned from the way I've been taught research is more of a westernized approach of like trying to keep yourself separate from the community and trying to be objective, whatever that mm. is. But I think really valuable research is understanding where the community you want to help is coming from. That's ethnography. Yes, I love that. So we're kind of reaching the end of our conversation here, unfortunately. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is we really need more people like you, especially on the African continent. It would be lovely to see more Africans involved in helping their communities to re-innovate their cultures towards our old ways of sustainability. So what advice would you give to other people, other Africans who haven't considered maybe a profession in conservation or who may be considering a profession in conservation? Well, there's a crisis on the earth and it's important that we see ourselves as part of the solution. So anyone who is reading zoology or reading biology should aspire to solve this problem or to contribute to solving this problem. It's the responsibility for all of us. And for those who who are just starters in conservation, who are just beginning there, I think one thing they can do is to claim ownership of this crisis. and. Just see themselves as change agents who are working across disciplinary boundaries, geographic boundaries. And then beyond just seeing yourself as an African, see yourself as a planetary citizen. And because we are all in this together, all in this together, all of us, all of us on Earth. This is our story, our unfolding story. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. It's not just an African problem. It's a global crisis. Problem, yeah. I think that's really important for us just to see ourselves as part of a bigger community, for sure. It's not just us. Yeah. Okay, so let's go into the lightning round. Oh, good. We have a set of four questions. Answer the first thing that comes to mind. So what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Well, there's a book I read. I will not say it has influenced me the most, but it was pivotal in my beginnings. There's a book I read during my national youth service. And the national youth service is a very important part of growing up as a youth. 
because it's one of the first things you would do outside the family. You know, you are just going outside the university world and you are meeting the real world. So it's very important for many Nigerians. So I read my first leadership book in my new service camp. <laughs> and the book was titled The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. <laughs> okay. That was by John C. Maxwell. John C. Maxwell? Yeah, yeah. That book changed my life. I had not read a leadership book before. It was my first. But it changed my life. It changed my orientation. Things like the law of the big mo, <laughs> that is momentum. <laughs> and then the law of the inner circle, always having some people who can advise you all the time. Those things changed my life. You see, not just reading a book, but making sure that you really do what is in the book. So practice what you are reading. <laughs> and that is how I began to develop leadership qualities and that's been with me for well, all these I years. I will check it out. Sounds very interesting. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Well, I think I would call that sustained initiative. The ability to keep banking on the drum. Not just a flash in the pan contribution. No. All through life. So that is one thing. That focus has been there to just keep at it. Sustained initiative. Yeah, I think that's one habit that has been with me for a very long time. Okay, yes. Because you can go farther and longer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the best piece of advice you've received? No, no, no. I don't think I have any best sort of advice. <laughs> because I wish somebody was here to advise me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've always been on my own. <laughs> but books have helped me. And then I remember when I was making the choice to go to Cambridge, and I was looking at myself, and I was telling my mentor, Phoebe Barnard, I was telling her, but I didn't have a first class. <laughs> I said, I didn't have a first class. How can I make it to Cambridge? And you know what she told me? She said, it is people like you that get there. Like, wow, people like me. That provokes me. <laughs> and I went to work out on the most powerful motivation letter. <laughs> and it got you into Cambridge. Look at that. It's... <laughs> and it got me into Cambridge. So that advice was really very important for me. And I would say, yeah, yeah, that's really... <laughs> Believe in yourself. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. What is your superpower? Hmm. That comes to mind easily. Resilience. The ability to bounce back after every adversity. And, and resilience is made up of several components, such as courage, hope, constructive acceptance, and the continual alignment with reality. Well, that's a good one. And those are the end of our lightning questions. So how can we follow you on your journey as you start to implement some of your cool ideas? Mm, nice. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, you can just type the names you have seen on the screen so you can get me easily. And then you can also message me, send me an email, S-A-W-O-Y-E-M-I at gmail.com. I'm available anytime. You need me for anything, I'll be available. Yep. And your articles are published on ResearchGate as well. So... And that's one way we can follow you as well. 
Yeah, yeah. And I really hope that the story reaches other conservationists who, you know, even if you didn't necessarily have a support system through your career, you can be one for somebody else. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. So is there anything else you'd like to add as we put a pause on our conversation? Well, I would just like to thank you, Sapnam, for this great work you're doing. It's so important to put upcoming scientists in the spotlight. I want to thank you for it and I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a complete honor and I really appreciate your support. It, It means a lot to me more than you think. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.